Are you deeply committed to making a difference and serving others, yet somehow feel uncomfortable with the idea of receiving abundant compensation for your efforts? It's like an unspoken agreement with yourself, doing great meaningful work while feeling a sense of guilt or shame around financial compensation. Welcome to a conversation that takes a deep dive into a mindset that might resonate with many of us, but we're unable to articulate. It's the idea of noble poverty. So here's a question for you. Would you benefit from ongoing support to improve your bottom line and ultimately help you master the business of practice ownership? Tracy Trepesky International offers you a proven, impeccably designed method to scale your practice while preserving your most precious assets, your time and energy. We blend business consulting with executive leadership to bring you what you need most to help you become an agile entrepreneurial CEO while serving your patients with the utmost attention to their care. You receive individualized coaching and support from me and our professional team, providing the best of business consulting and executive leadership coaching to grow your practice without working more. Schedule your complimentary 45-minute strategy call at tracytrapesky.com. Welcome to Thriving Practice. I'm your host, Tracy Trapesky, and I can't wait to introduce you to our incredible guests and to share business tips and strategies that will help make your life easier and support you in becoming the exquisitely fulfilled CEO you're meant to be. I am on a mission to help practice owners take back one day per week for the rest of their careers so they can focus on healing their patients and maximizing their profits. No more sacrificing your personal life or feeling burnt out. It's time to take back control and create the practice of your dreams. Whether you're a seasoned provider or just starting out, this podcast is your go-to resource for actionable advice and inspiration. Together, We'll uncover the hidden potentials within your practice and propel you towards the success and freedom you crave. So if you're ready to transform your practice, make a lasting impact and reclaim that one day per week for yourself, then you're in the right place. Let's embark on this journey together. Kara, thank you so much for coming on this show today. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you for having me. I know we're going to have an awesome conversation. I look forward to it. Yeah, I always I always laugh like if I were having a good warm up, my cheeks hurt a little bit from all the smiling yeah. and laughing. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, well, I am thrilled to have you on this show because I think the work that you're doing is so beneficial for all of your clients. I think especially other providers, and just I I love this concept that you've just taught me about the idea of noble poverty. So before we dive into that, I definitely want to talk about that, define what that is. But before we dive into it, tell us where you are in the world. Yeah, so I'm actually coming in from Lafayette, Colorado. So I'm about 40 minutes northwest of the Denver metro area for anyone who's visited this area. (laughs) Very nice. Oh, beautiful. And no snowstorms right now. You're actually having lovely, amazing weather. Very bizarre. We had our first snow during Halloween, which is pretty much, you know, on par with where that goes. And now we're in some weird hot flash or something. Hot flash. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, not typical for this time of year. Mm -hmm. Aw. So Colorado's middle-aged. Got it. Okay. (laughs) Very relatable to a lot of people, I'm sure. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Found myself here. I may have turned 50 this year. So, um, um, so I tell us a little bit about your business and then let's talk about this idea of noble poverty. Cause it really, it really struck a chord with me. 
Yeah, absolutely. So right now I wear lots of hats. I'm a serial entrepreneur, part-time professor, mental health therapist, and financial therapist, which is where I'll be living for most of our conversation today. Um, so I pivoted a lot. I used to work with at-risk youth and families early in my career, moved to youth on probation, moved to high-functioning, anxious pre-med professionals, which I still love and work with, <laughs> but now mostly focus my attention on serving my fellow colleagues. So therapists, social workers, PsyDs, folks who are in, you know, doing this meaningful work, but are dealing with all sorts of different pain points, which includes noble poverty. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what well, tell us about Noble Poverty and then maybe a little bit about what led you to focus in on this work. Yeah. So Noble Poverty is a term people are still getting used to. I know we shared that offline. Um, so Noble Poverty, by definition, means that we have more of a scarcity reaction with money where it's like, I want to do great things. I want to do meaningful things. I want to help people, but I don't expect to get paid for it. And so this Noble Poverty has like this Marty dumb, murder dumb, I can't say that word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be a martyr attached to it of like, I have to do this for peanuts. I have to do this without expecting an income from it. Um, so most people who align with the idea of noble poverty tend to be in like nonprofit sector or are professional helpers, which I know is your audience of whether it's healthcare or therapists or, you know, any, like I think of nurses mostly, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but all of those folks, they're like, I have to do this and I have to do this really well, but I don't expect to be compensated for it. And so it leads to all sorts of behavioral changes and mental, you know, capacity for like, should I make money? What does it mean if I make money? Um, and it's just, it's complex, but it's fascinating when people realize, oh, that's me. I'm in noble poverty. <laughs> and something that we know to be true, I think, is if our needs aren't being met, if all of our energy is going to surviving, we cannot do our best. Mm-hmm. Right. I think. Yeah. I think so that's, that's, a, that's just a point I want to drive home. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's very much connected to burnout, which is huge for healthcare and helping professionals of, you know, we want to do more and more and more. And then it's like, what's enough? What feels right? What is paying my bills and still doing something meaningful in my community? So it really comes back to values and some boundaries around the burnout equation, which is work more and more and more. And you and I talked about like hustle culture offline. So you know, there's just a lot to that, but I think for a lot of people to even know that 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 phrase exists, that noble poverty term exists, it makes them have a chance to take a hard look at themselves and say, "Is this me? What does that mean? Do I want to change that at all?" So some curiosity there. Mm-hmm. How did you? How did you end up here? How did you decide to work with with professionals on this idea of coming out of that mindset of noble poverty? Yeah. So back in 2020, I came into more of a public sharing of my own burnout journey as a professional. So I was probably in burnout from 2018 through 2019-ish, somewhere in there. Um, It might've actually been earlier, but I was like, so had so many blinders on, I didn't even realize I was in burnout. And so I wrote a book in 2020 that talked about workaholism and then moving that to more like work-life balance. And this was before it became such a a big buzzword of work-life balance. And so when I put that book out there, I shared my story of like realizing at the very end, like, oh, I'm going to lose my relationships. I'm going to lose everything that I hold dear if I don't change this. So I would change it for someone else, but I wouldn't change it for myself. And that's just sheer stubbornness and workaholism and perfectionism at work. And so 
um, from that, I started working with colleagues because they were like, you're sharing your story. I feel like you could help me, whether it was burnout prevention or burnout recovery, that they were in the thick of it and they wanted support and they wanted someone who understood what it felt like, what it looked like. And so from that vulnerability, I started doing more consultations with colleagues and had already been working with them on suicide assessment and some other really like heavy things. Um, and in 2021, I felt like I was about to go into burnout again. So I always say I've been in burnout one and a half times. And people are like, what? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but after white knuckling it through the pandemic with our clients, I just felt like I was seeing some familiar but not great things showing up for myself. Some behaviors had shown up again. I'd backslid into some workaholism to feel in control of what we none of us could control. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I was interviewing colleagues for an entrepreneurial project that I had. I found out about financial therapy. And I'd never heard of it before. So I interviewed a colleague, but the end of this 20 minute interview with her, I was like, I want to do this. I see a bridge in what I do with my colleagues. I think this will help them. Will you mentor me? So the next week we started a mentorship relationship and I learned all the techniques. So fast forward, pursued certification. Now I'm one of about 50 therapists that are certified as financial therapists in the US and specifically want to serve my colleagues. So went from, hey, I'll serve small business owners to now I want to serve financial therapists and therapists, so mental health folks. Mm -hmm. From a business perspective, niching and you know working on a target market and niching—I don't call it niching down, it's like deep niching, right? Like working with a very specific population for a specific purpose is a very smart business move. I would imagine, just a little sidebar here, that it's probably easier to market to one particular group of people than to try to hit uh, the entire spectrum of small business owners. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. I think the hardest part is, so sorry. Um, I absolutely agree. I think it's the hardest part is people know you for what you've already done. And so for me, it's been about like, how do I get my colleagues and my community up to speed with where I am now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I've pivoted probably easily half a dozen times in the last 13 years. And so going from working with a particular population to now saying, I want to work with the helpers. I want to work with the colleagues. Uh, it's it's a slow go of like helping people understand that. So I feel like I'm going to have to like talk a little bit more in marketing or like make that more clear because I was serving small business owners for quite a while. And this pivot is probably about two months old. So oh, I okay. agree like niching down is I've been doing it for months, but I actually like finally rebranded and made that a little bit more transparent on our website and people are a little confused. So mm -hmm. I agree with wholeheartedly with what you're saying. And I feel like it's such a process for people to like get up to speed with where we're headed next. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> oh no, no, we've been there. We've done the same in, you know, I've, I've been in business since 2010 and I've probably pivoted and adjusted my niche four times. I think about four times in the most recent was, I think we're coming up on two years ago now where it just, we just started, I started following my heart and listening to who, you know, who were the people that I felt like I could help make a difference in their lives and in their business more. Not that I wasn't helping other clients and to all my former clients who might be listening, who are not medical providers, I still love you. And I started getting more connected to this interesting why, right? And and that's a separate conversation. But the process has been interesting because we brought the podcast along with us about a year ago. Yeah, it was a year ago in September. So that took a little bit of time, even from the perspective of like potential guests to be like, yeah, if you're not working with medical providers on the business side, then that's even though what you do is really interesting and important. So it does, it takes time. It's also, 
it's okay. It's okay that it takes time. You know, I think that's a, a big empowerment piece of just being like, I'm standing here and I'm planting this flag here and I'm holding this torch and I'm saying, I'm here and I'm here to support you and help you. So yeah, I think it's a brave move in a business. And it, and I I think it speaks to the work that you've done on your own to come out of that scarcity, like, you know, knee jerk to be like, oh no, this is a much smaller market. Nobody's going to understand or what if, you know, whatever my, my things, what if people don't get it, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Those are the questions that come up for me. So we've definitely been there. And for our listeners, I think this is also important that sometimes it's okay even to narrow who, like if it's if you're a practitioner or provider, be really clear about who you serve and who you want to be there for. Do you love working with adolescent aged people? Then great, specialize there, you know, narrow mm-hmm. down your focus. So I do think that it's nothing wrong with being a generalist, but when you, when one does decide to go into a deeper niche, it's so satisfying. Mm-hmm. Well, I think from the financial therapy lens, it also speaks to we're overcoming scarcity we're moving closer mm-hmm. to that abundance that people are wanting to live in. Right. So if I say I serve everyone, when I talk to my students, I, I say, you know, you as a mental health professional, you can say, I serve people who have anxiety, depression, and trauma. Great. We all do. Like that tells me nothing about you when you're giving me your pitch of who you serve and why. And so to narrow down, I think helps people say, I want to remember that so-and-so does this thing or works with those adolescents or works with probation or whatever that looks like. And Mm -hmm. so narrowing down, I think, as you already named, makes it more simple and memorable when we're like, hey, I'm trying to build my network, build my community. Um, So I actually feel like everyone should niche down, but I recognize that's a process too of like go broad as you're like new to the field and then eventually get more specific. And that will ebb and flow with what's going on in your personal life, right? So it's very common for me to hear from colleagues that they don't want to work with kids anymore because they have children and that just feels too close to home um, or they feel like they're burnt out on a particular population. So all that to say, when we don't listen to our gut about those pivots, that is scarcity. And that's what I talk a lot about with with clients who are financial therapist clients who are mental health people who are mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, I'll lose clients if I niche down too specifically. And so we really have to like peel that apart, figure out where that's coming from. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So I was going to ask you about scarcity. And it's interesting because that's not directly related to money. I mean, there's a connection right? Mm -hmm. So when you work on this with your students and with your clients, do you start somewhere? Do you start with money or do you start with kind of the bigger picture and then take it up or down the ladder from there? Yeah. I mean, it it depends on what service they're coming in for. So if they're like, I want to do financial therapy, we kind of start with the money spin. But as you Mm -hmm. kind of alluded to, the mental health side is prevalent in the sense of where did this come from? What messages did you get from your family, from your first boss, from you know, the intergenerational trauma that you might've been going through. So where financial therapy feels like a nice bridge from the mental health work that I've known and loved for the last 13 years is that it still has a therapeutic aspect to it. It's not just, let me talk about numbers with you. It's, no, let's talk about your emotions to those numbers. Let's talk about your reactions to having an account that goes down below the number you're comfortable with or not making enough this month or whatever that looks like. Um, So for most folks, they're looking at family patterns, money beliefs, and money scripts. And all those things unlock a little bit about scarcity and behaviors that then show up because of scarcity, like taking clients Mm -hmm. that aren't a good fit. (laughs) It's a big one. I think we all have to learn from that. (laughs) You know? And it's it's uh, it doesn't mean it's a bad client. It just means it's not a fit, right? There are plenty of great people for whom there are going to be 
a better fit for therapy, coaching, whatever kind of service. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So when, when a, what would cause a client to come to you? Like, do they have a common complaint, so to speak? Like, oh, well, I never make my numbers or I'm always stressed about money or something like that. Yeah. I mean, for the folks I'm serving now in the mental health arena, a lot of them are just feeling like they don't have a good relationship with their money. So that could be personal mm-hmm. or professional, oftentimes both. And so maybe they're coming in saying like, I made all this money. I can see it in my tax forms, but I don't know where it is. Like, where is my money? Right. That's like a common uh, complaint. I don't know if complaint's mm-hmm. the right word, but like common sharing that they would have is like, this is what's going on. And so part of that is looking at, do they really truly know their numbers? Is there something else going on? What was fascinating for me in learning how to become a financial therapist is that mental health folks, 70% of us are avoidant with our money, which means we're not checking our bank accounts. We're not looking at our numbers. We're not making money-related goals. We're also not chasing down money that's owed to us, whether that's a client that hasn't paid for a service yet or their credit card declined or whatever that is. Like From that avoidance and noble poverty uh, combination, now all of a sudden... We're putting ourselves into like financial stress because we're not making money. Um, so so much there for folks when it comes to scarcity. Like there's so much I could say about that, but yeah, I think each person comes in with their own own individual agenda. Do I want to work on my private practice? Do I want to scale? Do I want to look towards secondary income streams? Um, because I serve therapists, it could be any of those things and more. Mm-hmm. Do you help them establish like a path to expanding their financial wealth. So for example, secondary income streams or ways to adjust their pricing or whatever it might be. Yeah. So sometimes they want to talk about what it looks like to raise their rates, how to even set their rates to begin with. So there's an interesting dynamic that shows up there when I have them fill out these four quadrants of how they show up in the world and watch what happens in this like narrative of like, I'm not good enough. So like self-worth shows up a lot. Um, which I feel like is why it's so good that I'm a mental health therapist first, financial therapist second, where I'm like, I'm not trying to therapize you, but like, this is where this comes from. It's like a core belief of like value and Mm self-worth. Um, so that's definitely a part of financial therapy. Some folks want to look at secondary income streams because they're burning out. Uh, Mm -hmm. when I talk to my students, we actually had a conversation yesterday where we had a panel of seven private practice clinicians come in. And I, I named for the students, I was like, all seven of them have secondary income streams because they don't want to just serve clients. That doesn't mean that's a bad thing to just serve clients. It just means that they want to invest in their business in a different way. And a modern therapist is going to have multiple income streams because mm-hmm. of that burnout equation. Um, so it could be those kinds of things, financial trauma. Yeah, I'm sure you have questions for me, but <laughs> those are some of the big ones. Well, I was just thinking about like the therapy model, right? From a business perspective and how constricting that is if it's simply trading time for pay. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously there's, you know, from a business perspective, it's hours and dollars. Um, and I'm curious if there's resistance to creating secondary streams of income or if they're already open to it by the time they come to you. I think specifically for the folks here in Colorado that I'm serving most often, they have already seen that that has been championed by like the leaders of our community. So like people have been more forthcoming of like, I'm creating retreats, I'm doing intensives, I'm teaching coursework, I'm building coursework, I have digital downloads. You know, the conversation that usually happens, though, is defining secondary income versus passive income. 
Because mm-hmm. when a clinician comes to me in burnout, they want passive income. Of course they do. They're like, I'm tired. I'm burnt out. I'm crispy. Like, leave me be. And then I feel a little disheartened when I say, you know, passive income takes effort to make it passive. And in my experience, it takes three to four years to really see it be passive. And even then, is it like little drops in the bucket versus like a solid income stream? At the time of talking to you, I have 15 income streams and that sounds impressive, but some of them are little, little itty bitty trickles, like a book sale. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so it's not like I'm making gobs of money, but it also prevents me from overworking knowing that I have that cushion of other income streams coming in. Mm -hmm. When they're in burnout, like, you know, we, we have an episode where we brought in some um, specialists who and experts who knew about burnout and the 12 stages. So if they're in the advanced stages of burnout and they're like, it's either something gives or I give up, or, you know, I'm pretty sure that I'm close to getting sick from all of this. Mm-hmm. How I'm, I'm thinking about the, the high incidence of burnout in the medical community and the caregiving community in general. Um, how do you help them calm that and kind of bring that under control so that um, they can go and create something? Because obviously upfront, even if you're going to, I'm putting air quotes here because passive income is kind of silly to me until you've got something really like rinse, repeat, set and forget kind of. And even then you can't really forget about it. You have to do something occasionally for it, right? Mm-hmm. But to get something new going requires a lot upfront. How do you how does that work? How do you help people kind of get over that hump and start doing that, um, the work yeah. that's required? I mean, it, it really boils down to like motivation for change, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, I'm tired, I'm burnt out, but maybe I'm coming, you know, at the like earlier stage of the advanced um, when it comes to burnout. And so for me, it's like, we got to schedule it or it doesn't happen. So the first thing I have them think about is like, what's your ideal schedule? How does that compare to the schedule you have now? This will be a process. This is not overnight that you get your ideal schedule. But as we move towards your ideal schedule, where in here is there a natural block of time that we can say, this is your time to create something. This is your time to dedicate to secondary income or to eventual passive income. And I love your air quotes. because like, none of it's really, truly passive. Let's be real. Um, <laughs> but people like, I want that. So, you know, like, where's that in the calendar? Is it on your Friday morning? Is it like the wee hours of morning before anyone's bothering you at work? Like, what does that need to look like to say, if I don't schedule it, it doesn't happen? Mm -hmm. And so I'm a fan of paper planners. I always have mine sitting right here. And so it's like, let's make that visual. Like, where are you going to put in an hour? Like I usually have them just start with an hour because that feels like a low risk of, you know, not a whole day, not half a day, not I've lost four clients worth of income. It's just, I need an hour. Is that your lunch hour? Is that an early morning hour? Or is that a Friday hour? And if they can do that, then they can start chipping away at the thing they're trying to build. But if you don't schedule it, it's not going to ever happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super important. You said that. And I looked over at my Panda planner. (laughs) Good for scattered people. Um, I I think about, you know, the amount of time I want to kind of highlight that because it's, it takes uh, one of the things that we do with our clients is we help them take back time, at least an hour a day, right? Because usually so much time is frittered away with things that they shouldn't be doing anyway. And so, um, or that someone else could be doing. So, you know, my experience is it takes at least three months, really at least three months to start recapturing that time. And then what happens is that momentum is your friend and now the wind's at your back, right? And so it becomes a little bit easier to carve out more time or to reprioritize time, or even something that I love to do is look at the higher value 
um, periods of time, right? Are you going to do invest time, your own time and energy into something that could yield just grabbing numbers here out of the sky, but like $10,000, or are you going to invest an hour of your time into something that could yield a hundred dollars? Mm-hmm. And maybe there are moments when that noble poverty mindset isn't terrible, right? I'm going to give back to my community. I'm not getting paid for that. That's This is what I'm doing, right? But in the bigger picture, right? Where are we going to carve out those periods of time? And I th- I find that it's easier for my own self. And I see that in my clients that once you get started and you get into the, the swing and into the practice of doing that, that it becomes e- easier. Maybe easy isn't the right word, but there's ease around it. That it's not as difficult. Yeah. yeah. I think that applies to burnout recovery too, of like mm-hmm. small steps, intentionality, and then you're climbing your way out, but it's not overnight. I love your, you know, three month marker. So those of us that are like very type A neurotic can be like, all right, three months, not tomorrow, yeah. not next week, not the end of the week. Um, and in my workaholism, I had a lot of like lofty goals and I didn't have realistic timelines. And I think that's what contributed to my burnout as a professional. So hopefully this is validating to listeners of like, you're going to set your own timeline. You know yourself the best, whether you subscribe to noble poverty or scarcity, or just feel like you don't have enough time in your day. There are strategies that make that more bearable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that incremental progress and incrementally, like starting with an hour, almost everyone can find an hour. If an hour feels overwhelming, then 15 minutes, what can you get done in 15 minutes? If you set that timer and you you know, lock into those 15 minutes, you might be surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, it's, I think the difference between like Newtonian time and Einstein time, right? Like <laughs> Einstein time is really flow <laughs> being in a flow state. And it doesn't require, you know, going to a silent retreat and learning how to meditate and get into some flow state. It's really just focus, right? For me, it's shutting down the noise, you know, not having my phone nearby, <laughs> things like that, yeah, you know, really distractions. that out. Oh my goodness. Exactly. The distractions, like the ADHD here. So yeah. So the distractions are real and I think they happen for everybody. And that's an important piece. Like you were saying, um, you know, maybe you're going in to the office early before you kind of get bombarded with the day or before the day really gets going. I had a client that was writing a book and he went into his office twice a week, I think an hour and a half or two hours before they opened and was committed to spending those two days doing that before the day God started and the amount of progress that he made was impressive in a really short period of time. Oh yeah. I love that. As a fellow writer, that absolutely works for so many of us of like time blocks, make it a commitment. Even when you don't feel like writing, you have it locked out for those two days a week. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And you know, he had times where he was like, so I overslept, but I didn't really oversleep. I just laid in bed (laughs) and I didn't want to go. So I didn't go. And I was like, oh, okay, well, how does that contribute to your progress? You know, like, well, okay. You know, it's like <laughs> we keep kicking the can down the street. I'm a, I'm a huge procrastinator. I have to have things in smaller chunks or else I won't do it. I'll keep pushing it further down. So we just needed to chunk down the goal a little bit more to make it more realistic and feel like it was closer. But I do think it's important for people to hear this, right? It takes time. It's a process. Uh, it's totally possible, even if you're in the throes of burnout to, to shift that. Um, and I would imagine I'm not a therapist, uh, you know, but I would imagine that being able to shift focus to something that feels lighter and feels more promising shifts our whole way of seeing things, or at least starts to help with that shift as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of this can be without intervention can go towards like this jaded compassion, fatigue, vicarious trauma place. And so 
to have something that feels like a different part of our brains, like that creative energy of like, I blocked out an hour to do, to write a book, to do something. Uh, It feels so different than holding space for clients one-on-one or group or couples, whatever service they're providing. So yeah, it it is a mental shift and it's beautiful to watch when they're like, okay, I actually look forward to my Friday morning because this is what I get to do. Or, hey, this feels exciting now because it's something different than what they might feel like they're slogging through right now. I love that. And I think it's helpful too, from the point of view of like how they're serving their clients and patients to come in with that fresh energy, because it's, even if somebody can't put their finger on it, it has a smell, it has an essence, right? If you're burnt out, it shows up in a way. And, you know, the opposite I think is true as well. If you're in a good, pretty good space and you're doing something that lights you up, it shows, it comes through. Yeah. We want to be good role models for our clients, right? So there's this funny meme that shows up every year. That's like, uh, it looks like a Halloween mask, like skeleton mask. And it's like therapist saying, you did your self-care this week, right? I didn't do mine. And like, it just looks like we don't, <laughs> I mean, that's the running joke is we are all horrible at doing self-care as helpers um, mm. because we're helping other people do it. But that image always pops in my head of like, well, yeah, it's going to show up maybe not that dramatically, but it's going to show up somehow in your ability to attune to your client, to have intuition, be present, feel jaded, all of the things. So yeah. when you said that, that image popped back in my head of like, here's this Halloween mask of I do self-care. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm going to, I, I, I got a manicure once <laughs> three years ago, right? That just doesn't count. Right. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I am so appreciative of the work that you're doing. I think, you know, so many of us have funky money stories and things that come with us. And I, I just believe that people in helping professions deserve all the goodness that they're putting out into the world and helping people achieve for themselves. So I just think that this is such a great service that you're providing for people. So thank you for doing that and yeah, for, for being it. who you are. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it, it shows, it shows, it really comes through. And I just want to plug your TEDx talks. I watched it before we got together and it's, I mean, I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> I was talking back to you the whole time. It, it's so good and it's really Thank resonant. You. So we'll make sure to include that in the show notes so that you can go and listen to it. I strongly recommend you go listen to it. It'll just be a continuation. I think of this conversation that we're having in 10 minutes or 11 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we say goodbye or, you know, see you later, um, what, what would you say is maybe like a piece of parting advice you'd like to give to our listeners? <laughs> Uh, you know, there's so many different things, but my hope would be that people will consider financial therapy or do their own work. There's so many great books out there now that are helping people tap into the psychology and the emotions of money. So it's not the self-help books of like, here's how to run a business, which also have immense value. I'm talking books like The Art of Money, which is like, here's your money story. Here's your family of origin. Here's your behaviors that have shown up because of scarcity. And so giving people a space to like do that work on their own or with a professional, I would hope people can feel inspired to do that from this, you know, from listening to this episode, Um, whether it's a workbook or book or doing it with somebody else for accountability. My hope is people are just going to start talking about this a little bit more, share what noble poverty is, say, hey, I learned this today. Hey, here's how scarcity shows up for me. And just watch the change happen when it's front and center, when it's in your awareness, when you've been primed to think more about your money story. It changes things so fast and in really positive ways. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I didn't know about this book, the art of money. I've heard, you know, you're a badass at making money and like yeah, the kind of those books. Too. And, <laughs> it is a good one. It's a really good one. Actually. Somebody turned me on to that and I was like, wow, this is great. Cause it's just, you know, it, I don't have to like 
slog through a bunch of terminology or whatever, just doing the work. Right. But I think, I think that it's, it's really important. We don't talk about it enough. It's sort of something, maybe it's a little bit generational, but I still think it's part of our our culture that it's kind of taboo to talk about money. And yet there's a lot of therapists that are barely making it. Um, They're barely able to pay their bills and certainly providers in their early stages, if they're not therapists and other helping professions that are really struggling and suffering. And it's just that's not that's not going to serve you or your patients or clients. It's just not going to to put you in your best place. And I think that's what most people want is to show up and do the best they can. So I, I really appreciate this. Um, wh- what is the best place for people to find you? Oh gosh, probably my website because it has all the projects that I do. And I know you landed on there. I was like, wow, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> so my website yeah, you have is a lot going on. Counseling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have all things, again, serving mental health and financial therapists and training. So supervision, talk about suicide assessment on there, have all my books that I've written. But yeah, just really trying to give like a landing page for folks to be like, okay, what thing do I need and what support do I need? So hopefully that can be of value to listeners. Wonderful. Yep. We'll share all of those links in the show notes. They're easy, easy to find. Well, Kara, this was so great. The time flew by and I just, I really enjoyed our conversation. I so appreciate the work that you're doing. And I thank you for coming onto the show today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thriving Practice. I appreciate you. And I have an ask. If you got value from this show, make sure to share it. You can give a shout out on social media or tell your friends and colleagues about it. You can also subscribe so you never miss a show. To learn more about how we work with practice owners to help them take back their time, head over to tracytrupesky.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter, which has tips and tools for your practice success. A special thanks to our incredible team and thanks to you, our dear listener, for sharing the gift of your time and attention. I wish you so much success as you continue to move forward in your day. If I can be a resource to you, let's schedule a time to talk. You can find the scheduling link on our website.